And greetings, church family. How's everybody today? Everybody good? Everybody good? I bring you greetings from Chief's Kingdom. I am uh, arrayed in kingdom colors today, and when I say, how about those, I give you the opportunity to bear verbal witness to your belief that the Chiefs will run it back today. You know, this is my second Sunday in a row or second year in a row to preach on Super Bowl Sunday and have our team in it. And uh, I'm not saying, I'm just saying, uh, I did my very best to recreate my preaching setup uh, from last year because we won, and I'm sure that had something to do with it. So Bill Anthony, a member of our church, uh, gave me a replica Super Bowl ring, and I and then this year when we won, he gave me another. So I've got both of those. Um, I'm not going to continue to wear them because they're super loose, and if I start waving my arms wildly, you're dead, you're dead. Some of you over there are dead as well. These are pretty heavy. So I, I, uh, I'm going to... I'm going to set those aside, but uh, as last year, I will be preaching from my, uh, my MacBook, which is adorned in Chief's uh, colors, and I've got my uh, water in my Chief's cup, so I, I'd say that we are all set here today, guaranteed a victory. Now, let's think about testimony. What is a testimony? Well, there is a sense in which all of us today are, are bearing testimony. We are uh, living out our allegiance to our favorite team by wearing various chiefs' gear. But the testimony is actually the message of someone else. The testimony is the message of a witness. Now, in a court of law, a witness gives a testimony concerning the facts of a particular case. So if our chiefiness today is our testimony, we are witnesses to or for chiefiness. Now, I share all of that because this morning we are going to talk about that idea, that concept of being a witness, but not a witness for a football team or a court case, but instead witnesses to our hope in the gospel of Jesus Christ. The New Testament often describes followers as witnesses. Jesus, in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, told his disciples, You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Now, what is the message of which we are witnesses? We are witnesses, every one of us who know Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, witnesses to what we have seen and what we have heard. When John, who is the human author of the book of Revelation, opens his letter of 1 John, which we studied last winter, that's what he says. He says he is a witness to what he has seen and heard and is therefore bearing testimony to the gospel of Jesus and the impact that that gospel of Jesus has on our world. And as witnesses, we are called to share that testimony with others. And as history moves toward its appointed end and we draw nearer and nearer to the return of Christ, our role as witnesses bearing that testimony is going to become more and more vital. And that is what we are going to see today as we look at the book of Revelation. If you would please open your Bible to the book of Revelation, find chapter 10. Revelation chapter 10. We are going to do what we have been doing recently today, it may be uncomfortable for you, we're going to take a lot at once. And you may be asking yourself, well, why are we covering today two chapters? I mean, there's so much detail 
Couldn't we just spend time examining that detail? And of course we could. Absolutely, there's worth in doing that. But one of the things that I have discovered is that most people who want to study Revelation spend so much of their time looking at the proverbial forest or trees that they cannot see the proverbial forest. So while you might be able to engage someone about conversation concerning Revelation, about things concerning uh, the timing of, of the tribulation and the church's role in it and the timing of the second coming, if you said, okay, but now let me ask you, what's the book of Revelation about? Far too many could not give you the accurate answer. When we get right down to it, God gave us Revelation to teach us one central message. Here it is. Fear not. Jesus is on his throne. Let me say that again. The central purpose of the book is fear not. Jesus is on his throne. Now, so far, we've seen the foundational visions beginning in Revelation chapter 4 that anchor really everything that comes after the vision of God on his throne, the vision of the Lamb being worthy to open the seals. And then those seven seals were opened. And I shared with you that my view is not that that is the future, but that is the present, that the seven seals detail the plight of the church in a fallen world facing opposition from those who do not know Jesus But it also showed us how God protects his people to accomplish his mission. Then we get to the seven trumpets and things get even wilder, more chaotic because I have shared with you taught that those seven trumpets represent the actual period of the great tribulation. And what we will see today is that return to the theme that even though times are difficult, as difficult as they've ever been, God provides his protection to his people to accomplish his mission. Now, frequently when people encounter me and talk with me about my view that the church is present through the tribulation, they will ask, well, what would be the purpose of that? What would be the purpose for God keeping his people on earth to go through that time? And I believe that the reason he keeps us on earth during that time is the same reason he keeps us on earth today. He keeps us on earth today to accomplish his mission. We are continuing now and in the future to witness to what we have seen and heard, the message of Jesus Christ and his salvation offered through his sacrifice. So we're going to see that today, and then as we close, I want to give you four quick things about the witness of the church that apply not just for a future time, but apply to right now. So I hope you found Revelation 10. Follow along as I begin reading in verse 1. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud, with a rainbow over his head, and his face was like the sun, and his legs like pillars of fire. He had a little scroll in his hand, and he set his right foot on the sea, and his left foot on the land. And he called out with a loud voice, like a lion roaring. When he called out, the seven thunders sounded. And when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up what the seven thunders have said. Do not write it down. And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea 
and on the land raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever and created heaven and what is in it and the earth and what is in it and the sea and what is in it, that there would be no more delay. But in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled just as he announced to his servants the prophets. Now, obviously, lots of different things to pay attention to there. The first thing that probably comes to many uh, people's mind is the idea of the mighty angel from heaven crying out with a booming voice leading to seven thunders. What are, people always want to know, what are those seven thunders? Well, we don't know. And we don't know because God doesn't want us to know. He told John, not to write that down. This should reaffirm for us that there are things about the end of time that we simply will never be able to discern in this life. God did not give us all the details, probably because we couldn't handle all of the details. There's a lot of mystery here when you read the book of Revelation. That's the reason you need to read it humbly and with an open hand. Then the angel swears an oath. And I want you to notice what he swears. It's at the end of verse 6. He swears that there will be no more delay. In other words, this is it. This period commences the end of all things. With the sound of the seventh trumpet, the end begins. We are going to experience in the chapters that that come beginning in, in chapter 12 the the redemptive drama, the last scene in all of God's plans for humanity. John is commanded, having heard that, to go and take a little scroll from the hand of the angel in the portion that we didn't read. And so he goes to the angel, and the angel gives it to him and says, Take, eat it. Eat the scroll. Why? Well, because if John is going to share this message with the people of God, then he's got to first digest it. John says the taste of this scroll is sweet like honey. Meaning what? Meaning initially this message is good. It's God's word about the end. Jesus is about to come back. God is going to judge the world. He's going to make all things right again. But then it hits his stomach, we learn at the end of chapter 10, and it's bitter So once the message goes down, it doesn't feel good. Why? Because as we'll see, this message also includes the fact that before the end fully comes, God's people are going to suffer and be persecuted. So to John, it is a bitter, sweet message. Yay, it's all about to be fixed, but not before incredible hardship. Now, it's my understanding, and frankly, it's most who study the book of Revelation's understanding, that the content of that little scroll can be known. It is chapter 11. But before we dive into it, it's important to know that chapter 11 has historically been one of the most difficult chapters in the book of Revelation. A, a, a book full of difficult chapters. It's been historically one of the most difficult chapters to interpret. There's a lot of debate here, so you are going to hear my take on things as we continue reading in verse 1. Verse 1 of chapter 11. Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. 
But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. Now, there are two historical interpretations of those verses that we have just read. One of those interpretations is that John is being shown the reconstruction of a literal brick-and-mortar temple. Many believe that in the end times, the Jewish temple will be rebuilt on the famous Temple Mount in Jerusalem. Some even go to the point of lobbying and praying for the temple to be rebuilt because they believe that this will facilitate or usher in the return of Christ. The other view is that John is not measuring a little literal temple, but this temple is symbolic of something else, that it is symbolic of the church. Now, obviously... You probably have guessed. I hold to that second view, and I'll give you a few reasons why. For one, these verses say nothing at all about the rebuilding of a temple. John is simply told to measure the temple of God. And note that he is not told to just measure the footprint, the buildings, but he's also told to measure those who worship there. He's told to measure, think about it, the people of God. And that very language should let us know that there's something symbolic going on. Second, the New Testament makes clear that there's no need for a temple anymore. We don't need the temple, and God does not want us to build another one. In the Old Testament, the temple served the purpose of representing the presence of God in the midst of the people. We know it was also the place where sacrifices were made for sin. But what does the New Testament tell us? It tells us that Jesus fulfilled the purpose of the temple because he was the presence of God in the midst of the temple. Jesus also fulfilled the purpose of the sacrifices. Hebrews 9 and 10 are all about the fact that the sacrifice of Christ was once and for all for sin. This is why you don't bring bulls and goats with you on Sunday morning for me to slaughter in front of you so that you can have your sin forgiven. We do not need that ritual anymore. We do not need a literal temple anymore. Third, the New Testament also makes clear that the church is the temple today. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3.16, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? And again, in 2 Corinthians 6.16, For we are the temple of the living God. Since the Holy Spirit lives in us, we as the church are now the temple of God. That's why I believe Revelation chapter 11 is not talking about a literal, physical, brick-and-mortar building, but is instead talking about the church and the rest of the imagery feeds that very idea because you're clearly talking about people who even if they were Jewish believers reserved for the time of the tribulation as many believe they would also have no need for a literal temple just like what I have shared. Lastly, I want you to understand that I believe that this is talking about the church because of the context of the entire book, which I think is far too much lost. Revelation was written to a church who was under attack to encourage them then. What good would the idea of a future reconstruction of a building they didn't need anymore provide for them. Nothing. Rather, I think that this is teaching about God's protection of his people. 
Think about it. That's why John is measuring the people. He's measuring out the area of God's protection around his people. He's giving us a symbolic indication that God will not lose one of his. The area that's not to be measured represents the rest of a world under judgment. The outer court, the holy city, is going to be trampled in that judgment, and the church will be protected from that. So the point here is that as the church witnesses, as we accomplish the, the role that God has left us on earth to accomplish now and in the future, God will protect us. But God's protection is not a promise to keep us always from physical hardship. It is, however, a promise of spiritual protection that in doing his work, we will always have what we need to do it. I think the next verses begin to make that clear. Look at verse 3 of chapter 11. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky, that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast rises up from the bottomless pit and will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some of the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead body and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. But after three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them, and they stood up on their feet, and great fear fell upon those who saw them. And then I heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here! And they went to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. And at that hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. Seven thousand were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe is past, John says. Behold, the third woe is to come. Now, a few things there. <laughs> a lot of imagery, right? I mean, you're getting fire hosed with imagery there. And there are a lot of different things that you can pause and reflect and study by themselves. So, so let's just admit right now, there's a lot of imagery, a lot of symbolism taking place in those verses. The second thing I want to point out to you is that one of the views of the end times is that the physical removal of the church will happen at the midpoint of the tribulation. Just for framing reference, there is a group, a larger group in American Christianity today that believes that the church is physically removed prior to the start of the tribulation. Then there is another group, which has historically been the dominant group throughout Christian history, and that is the belief that the church is physically removed at the end of the tribulation. But there is a group that believes that the church is physically removed in the middle of the tribulation, and it's based 
on the chapter that I just read you. So two things, lots of imagery, debate about the significance of the witnesses being called up to heaven. That, again, should lead us to explore God's word with all the strength that we have, but to hold our conclusions humbly. There's a lot going on here. I want to encourage you, as a matter of fact, to look at this section on your own time. But as I've pointed out, people disagree as to what these two witnesses, for instance, represent. There are those who believe that these will be two literal people. But I believe these two witnesses are not to be interpreted as two literal people, but they are representative of the church and its mission. These witnesses then would be the same people measured out by John for God's protection at the beginning of chapter 11. The key to me thinking this is that these witnesses are called two olive trees and two lampstands. Now, the two olive trees is actually a reference to a prophecy from the Old Testament in, in the book of Zechariah. To make a long story short, Zechariah saw two olive trees uh, having oil uh, replenished two lampstands who represented uh, two people, Joshua the high priest and Zerubbabel. So why does John make this 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 comparison, why is Jesus showing a vision, helping John make a comparison between Joshua the high priest of old and Zerubbabel the governor of old? Well, because these two men in the prophecy of Zechariah served as representative of the people of God at the time, just as I believe that these witnesses represent the people of God. The two witnesses are also called lampstands, and we need to stop and think, okay, have I seen that language before in the book of Revelation. And of course, we have in chapter 1. Jesus tells us that the seven lampstands represent the seven churches. So again, I believe these two witnesses tell us about the role of the church in the tribulation. And that role is significant. They show us why we are here and what will be taking place. They show us that the church is going to display during this final chapter of human history, incredible power, similar to that of Elijah and Moses and the miracles and the plagues, which all of these things that are mentioned hearken back to in the Old Testament. There actually will be a period of time, perhaps, where there's no physical harm that befalls the church, at least in such a way that would keep us from fulfilling our mission. But we see in verse 7 that eventually a beast will come on the scene and the witnesses will be killed. And as we'll see in coming chapters, this beast is the Antichrist, and he will persecute and kill many in the church. Thus, during the tribulation, there will be a period of time where things get very bleak for the church and appear hopeless. The witness of the church will seem to be lying dead in the street, people of the world celebrating, finally being rid of the scourge of the church until the second coming where God restores and resurrects the church that had been left for dead by the world and shows that they are indeed truly his people. All of this heralded by the sounding of the seventh trumpet. The seventh trumpet, the sound of a trumpet heralding the end is imagery that Paul uses multiple times to indicate what will transpire at the end. Look at verse 15. The seventh angel blew his trumpet. And there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, 
and he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders, remember, represent the spiritual uh, manifestation of the church in heaven. The 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord Almighty, who was and is and is to come, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged, and for rewarding of your servants, the prophets and the saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of the covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder and earthquake and heavy hail. You've heard the phrase, it's all over but the shout. Well, that's what we're seeing here. There may be some things left to do. It may not be officially over, but it's over. That's what we are to witness to. We don't witness from a place of uncertainty. We don't witness from a place of wondering what is going to transpire, what will come of the church, what will come of God's people, what will come of the message of Christ. We don't witness from that place of uncertainty. We witness from this place of victory. We witness to the fact that the kingdom of this world has become and will become the kingdom of Jesus, and he shall reign forever and ever and ever. So these chapters show us why God would keep the church present during the tribulation to continue as witnesses providing testimony of what we have seen and heard in Jesus, which is, by the way, why we're left here today. The reason that you weren't taken immediately to heaven upon your salvation, the reason that that 120 who were at the upper room in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost weren't immediately just taken to heaven is because we have been left here to bear witness to the world of what we have seen and heard. And if you don't agree with anything I've said about the church's role during the time of tribulation, everything I'm about to say is something we can all agree to because this chapter has taught us about our job. First, we are to witness by the word. If you're filling anything in, that's the first thing to do. We are to witness by the word. John's message is not John's message. It's God's message. And John is instructed to take it and eat it, indicating he's not to offer his own opinion, his own thoughts on things going on in the world with the world. He is to share what God has given him. When it comes to our witness, when it comes to our mission, it's the same. We must tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. And the truth is found in Scripture. Our witness in the world today needs to be rooted, lashed, anchored to the Word of God because this will become increasingly important as we near the end. Paul himself said that in 2 Timothy 4, 3 through 4. He said, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Here's what I've noticed about human beings. Human beings read that two-verse section of 2 Timothy and go, why would anybody not listen to the Word of God? We always think everybody else's ears are itching. We never pay attention that we're chasing prophets who soothe us far too many times. 
We want the news of the world that appeal to us. We want the preacher who will affirm us. But what Paul said is that if you are not lashed to the word of God, you're going to wander off into the word again, myths, and miss what God has left you here to do. So first, we must witness by the word. Second, we must witness with God's protection. As God's witnesses, he will protect us. He will enable us to do the work that he has called us to do. So don't be afraid of persecution or hostility or what people might think. God will always make a way for you to fulfill the work he's left you to do. Even in the tribulation, when Satan is on the offensive, we don't have to fear because we will be kept safe. But we need to make clear, God's promise, once again, is not a promise of physical protection. It's a promise, ultimately, of spiritual protection, enablement to do that which God has called us to do, and final protection from the judgment that is to come, which does not mean that we won't face suffering from a world in opposition to God, which brings us to our third truth. Witness in the Word witness in uh, the, uh, God's protection, and then next, witness in persecution. The church has always witnessed in persecution. It's amazing, really. Throughout history, world leaders and governments and powers attempt to destroy the church through persecution. And guess what happens? The church always grows. Always grows flourishes. In fact, if you chart on a map where Christianity is flourishing and where it is being diminished, it's being diminished in the places with the most freedom. Meaning what? Meaning, meaning that the people there who call themselves Christians, who have more freedom than anybody else in the world, to speak of Jesus with others are speaking about a whole lot of other things but not Jesus. Compare that with China. As the Chinese government has attempted to eradicate Christianity over the years, the underground church there has thrived. In fact, I've seen estimates in the past few years that say that there will be more Christians in China in 2050 than there are Americans in America. Let that sink in. More Christians in China than there are American citizens flourishing in the face of persecution. This is a pattern we see throughout the Bible and throughout history. As the church is persecuted, our witness is not suppressed, but rather it is strengthened. This is why we should not fear hostility and persecution. It's common today to hear Christians say that if the political chips don't fall in a certain way, then we're going to lose our religious freedom and lose our churches. And while we should not eagerly seek persecution, that would be sadistic. And we should certainly fight for and support religious freedom for all. We need to understand that it doesn't matter what the government does to the church. Because the power of Christ in us makes us triumphant in sharing his news with the world and getting pressed in upon 
just causes that to spread more rapidly. Which brings us to the final thing we learn about the witness of the church. We need to witness to victory. When we continue to bear testimony of Jesus in the face of hardship and persecution, we are bearing testimony to the worth of Jesus. In other words, we are not worrying and remaining uh, obedient. When we worry, when we fret, when we say, woe is me, we're not being obedient. But when we give witness to the coming victory we'll experience in, in Christ because his victory is final, then we're being obedient. As the church, we're called to witness, and not just in the end times. It'll be very important then, obviously, but we're called to witness now, today. We're to witness by the word, with God's protection, in persecution, and to victory. And this is the moment where everybody says, you know what, amen. Amen. All right, let's just let's stop for a minute. How many times have we heard this? I've been here almost 14 years. How many times have you heard it from me, much less in your Christian life? How many times have we heard this? And we say, you know what? Doggone it, I'm going to do better. I'm going to do better. I, I'm going to start telling other people about Jesus. And then the next time something like this comes up, you'll say, well, man, I, I don't know what happened. I'll tell you what happened. You've been talking about what's important to you. You've been talking about what really matters to you. That's what you've been doing. That's what I've been doing. You know what a key indicator is of, of whether you're really going to take this seriously or not? Do you know your neighbor's names? Do you know their story? Do you know their background? You know them well enough to have an idea of where they might stand with Christ. And are you building a relationship with them to share with them, ultimately, the message of Jesus? That's how we can tell whether we're serious about this or not. Coworkers, you say, well, we don't talk about, about personal stuff at work. Oh, really? Talk about a game? past couple weeks just throwing this out did you talk about the societal situation in 2020 did you talk about the pandemic how it was affecting you what your opinions were on it what about politics did you do that of course you did of course you did we all did the fact of the matter is a reason that we are failing in America as an American church has nothing to do with secularism Nothing at all. It has to do with our idols as a church. And what we have deemed to be more important than literally everything we've been left here to do. I'm not saying that all of the other things aren't unimportant. I have opinions on all of those other things. I have talked about all of those other things sometimes with you. But I'm saying that the name of Jesus is, is on our lips far too infrequently. And the message that Jesus saves is never there. 
We have been left here to witness to the greatness and glory of God demonstrated through Jesus Christ. And everything else is trivia. And if it's knocked you off your rocker in 2020, it's an idol. Pure, plain, and simple. So let's remember what we're here to do. Let's remember the word that God gave us to do it. Let's remember the protection he has given us to do it. Let's, let's understand that it may cost us something to do it, but let's never lose sight of the ultimate victory. Fear not. Jesus is on his throne. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.